you could just as easily be that person that's in prison, right? He's like, you have a responsibility to take the opportunity that you've been given and give that back to so many people because you have that opportunity. That was Andrew, CEO of the growing tech company Herd. Becoming a CEO wasn't always on the cards for Andrew. Early in life, he was beset with panic disorder. And as a teenager, he did drugs and ran with the wrong crowd. In his worst moment, he had a stomach full of pills and a revolver in his mouth. Everyone likes a good rags-to-riches redemption story. The homeless person who becomes a radio presenter again. The kid from the projects who becomes an international musician. Andrew started on the wrong path, but that's not the story here. This is a story about putting in the work and grinding it out. Some of the work is stuff we all do to build a life, like studying at college and climbing the corporate ladder. But the real story is the work Andrew has done and is doing on the inside to face and come to terms with his mental illness and working on the scars of a traumatic past. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, Andrew gives an inside look at his panic disorder, anxiety and depression. He talks about the mental health resources PwC offered and also some of the gaps in their offering. Finally, he tells us what he and his co-founders at Herd are doing to bring mental illness out of the shadows. Remember, Andrew and I are just two people talking about our personal experiences living with and managing mental illness. If you have a mental illness and anything you hear inspires you to make a change in the way that you're approaching it, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Bratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. So welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Appreciate that. So Andrew, why don't you tell us who are you and what do you do? I am... Andrew, I am the co-founder and CEO of Herd, a mental health startup that's focused on enabling mental health care providers to grow and manage their practice so that they can deliver the right care. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Thank you for doing that. I have an observation that people who get into the mental health field usually have some kind of reason or drive, some kind of experience in that area. So uh, what was it that, that led you to found, uh, to found Herd? Yeah, that's a great question. So <laughs> I think it started at a pretty early age. Um, I can look back to my my childhood. There's this one acute moment that I can point back to now that I've seen therapists for, you know, probably the past decade of my life. But um, I was 12 years old and I was in the car heading to, to Lake Shasta with a couple of different friends. We're about 30 minutes outside of um, Twalt in my hometown that I grew up in. And I had this weird sensation of my chest being really tight. The car starting to get extremely stuffy. Yelled out to my my uh, friend's dad in the front, Nick's dad in the front of the car. I was like, pull the car over. We have to stop. I need to get out. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, he pulls over and you know pulls over to this gas station. And needless to say, my parents came, drove the 30 minutes and, and picked me up. It was incredibly shameful. But I think that was you know, prior to understanding what mental health was, that was the first time that I can really point back in, in my life and say, 
hey, I had this acute experience that I had a panic attack. I was 12 years old. And then um, as I progressed through my adolescence, I started selling drugs. And as a result of selling drugs, I started doing a lot of the drugs. I was doing a lot of ecstasy. I was doing a lot of prescription pills. And I got to this very acute moment in my life where you know, there was a lot of external negative reinforcement around me that I was saying, you're not worth it. You're a waste of space. Um, because of the drug dealing? Because of the drug dealing, because of the impact that it was having on my family, because of the impact that it was having on my life and the people around me. I was stealing. I was, you know, basically doing everything that I could to, you know, keep this habit that I had developed. And I just fell into this deep, deep, dark depression. And, you know, I have this one acute moment. My parents were out at our, our cabin. We have a cabin on the coast. And I took basically everything that existed in the prescription pill cabinet and, you know, put my put my dad's double action revolver in my mouth. And I don't I don't know what it was, but that next morning I woke up next to the to the workbench in our in our garage. And that was the that was the first time that I, I came to my parents and said, Hey, this is something that we need to get figured out. Um, and saw a psychiatrist for the first time at, at 16. That didn't end up, didn't end up working out, but uh, um, ultimately um, continued down that path of you know, starting to understand that, hey, there's a lot of things that I've been experiencing for a number of years that I'm probably going to have to figure out methods to, methods to manage these things. So walk us through that. So you had the panic attack, and then... Do you, was the drug use part of trying to manage the panic attacks? Like, did they come on sort of again and again, or were those two different things? You know, now that I look back, I can pretty soundly say that, you know, a lot of the drug use and a lot of the pot smoking, I was smoking a fair bit at, at that point in time. And, you know, it was a, it was a tool at that time to, to manage and escape these challenging thoughts that I had. Um, and I think, you know, reflecting on that, it's, it's very easy for me to now say that that's something that I, I leverage to manage. Cause even now, you know, I know if I've had a tough week or a challenging week and I know if I, I have a drink or if I go out with my friends and have a few drinks, that's going to be something that's very easy to shut my mind off. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly something that I started to use to, to manage my anxiety at a, a point in time. And this just kind of occurred to me as you were talking there, but like, you know, you and I have just met like face to face for the first time. There's like a joy that you ca- that you carry with you, and it's so true. Whenever you have these conversations, that you sort of look at this person now after their their journey, and the person that you're describing is so hard for me to see because of you know the work you've done and where you've got. So it's remarkable. Yeah, I think it's also perhaps a a superpower, no pun intended, that I've I've developed over the years. Is it's something that I, I hid for so long, was so ashamed to talk about, um, was challenged to talk about. And I, I don't think that, you know, I necessarily had the, the right words to understand what these things were that I was experiencing to, to share these experiences with other and necessarily understand the power of what sharing those experiences actually did for me. But yes, it's something that that cloak or that shield is something that I've developed over the years. You wear it well. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> So at some point you said depression started to show up in this journey from kind of uh, you know panic attacks through drug use. Can you cast your mind back now with kind of your your current perspective and see the point where you know that depression really started to to creep in? So it got it got to the point in time in my my drug use that it had it had shifted out of a I would say a point of 
control for me. Um, and all of the, the drug use that I had was really starting to impact the relationships around me. Um, friends were concerned about me. I was pushing them away. You know, my family and I never had a great relationship when I was younger. Um, and I think things took, took a dark turn and I was, you know, perhaps abusing drugs more than I should have. And, you know, I just, I started getting all that negative reinforcement around me. And I think that's when the, the narrative in my mind started to change and turn to look a lot like the words that were around me coming into me of you're not worth it. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, treating your parents this way. You're going to end up homeless. I used to get called into the administrative office at school to, to basically get told that I was a, a piece of shit on a weekly basis. And I need to get my shit together. I need to get new friends to hang out with. And go school system. Yay. Yeah, go, go school system. <laughs> Very supportive. Yes, yes. I was spending a lot of time with, you know, the crowd or the community of people that were abusing drugs and selling drugs. But then I also existed in this this other element. I, also, I always had a broad spectrum of, of friends and I always presented well and, you know, I was still a good student regardless. So I think I always had this air about me of like, don't tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing. Things are okay. I'm doing all right. I mean, look at my grades, look at everything else. You know, my ability to communicate with others, my ability to present in a certain way allowed me to shield my experiences for so long. And it became, you know, a snowball effect of it's almost it was almost like a game of like I could be this person but also that person and that so I think it was the point where those two worlds kind of came and collided together of where I couldn't pretend to be this person because all the things from this person were really starting to present in this person um, and I think that was one of the biggest challenges you know that's amazing because that mirrors exactly my experience in my case with alcoholism where you know, I was the you know successful person working in the in the tech sector, and I woke up in hospital with you know a sort of extreme alcohol poisoning, and it's like the world of like James the tech person, successful tech person, with James the drunk waking up in hospital, like like couldn't like rationalize each other, so like they had to meet for the first time, and that kind of moment of like, okay, there's something going on here that you know, that I'm hiding and suppressing. And I guess it's time I have to look at it now. So just fascinated to hear like that story kind of echoed back there. You know, it's those, those acute moments that, you know, are a, are a forcing function for us having to, to look in the mirror and really understand. But I think, you know, I had this acute moment, this suicide attempt in high school, and then, you know, things didn't necessarily get better for a long time. It was a, it was a turning point for me and it was a, you know, a decision in my life or a decision point in my life where I said, Hey, I need to get things sorted out. You know, like I said, I saw a therapist for a little while, but you know, I was still smoking all the time. I was uh, still getting into trouble, still partying all the time. And it wasn't until I, I met this gal <laughs> junior year of high school or senior year of high school, who is now a, a PhD, a licensed psychologist, perhaps, you know, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. It Started young. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, but really it was, you know, the first time in my life that I had someone that said, you know, look, you matter. I care about you. I love you. I'm here to support you. You know, the things that you're saying aren't crazy. You're allowed to have these thoughts. You're allowed to be ambitious, but you're also allowed to be challenged and 
you know, those things that you're going through are okay. And I'm here to listen. And when you start going through those experiences, let me know. And we can talk about those things. And so I followed her up to, to Spokane. Thankfully it worked out. She is now currently my wife. You know, I was at this, this point in my life where things were starting to change for the better, but I really hadn't gotten things under control. So I went to the, the orientation at Oregon State. I drank half a bottle of codeine and, you know, about half of a fifth. And that's, I think that next day, and I was like going to all of these orientation events. And then I realized that next day is, you know, I probably should be doing something different. And so I made, made the decision that next week after talking to Natasha that I was going to come up to Spokane. I was going to go to the Spokane Falls Community College for, for two years and make an attempt to transfer into Gonzaga, which ultimately happened. But um, taking the depression, the anxiety, the panic that I had been dealing with that hadn't necessarily been sorted out and placing that in the middle of Spokane without a support system, without friends, with bad family relationships, with a girlfriend at the time who's trying to assimilate into the college culture, trying to make friends, trying to live a normal life and trying to manage this other person that's just a wrecking ball that's still trying to figure himself out. It was incredibly challenging. And that that first semester at, or that first quarter at Spokane Falls Community College, I had a 0.7 GPA. My panic disorder got so bad um, that first quarter that I could hardly bring myself to, to show up to class because I was so concerned that it would feel like the walls are closing in, that I wouldn't be able to escape the classroom, that, you know, <laughs> I would be, you know, challenged to participate. What if somebody called on me during class? It's all of these, these very irrational funny thoughts that when you say them out loud, they seem very silly, but in your mind, you, you know, construe these magnanimous moments in your, in your mind that are just going to explode on you later on. If you go back in time, so you were what, 17 in, as a senior in high school, 17, 18, I forget. Yeah. 17. 17. So this young woman, Natasha sees the sort of troubled, but um, smart, you know, kid. What is it she saw? in you that made her reach out and say like, you're okay. And then go through this whole journey with you. The one thing that she saw was my genuine passion for life, my joy for life and my desire to support others and care for others. I think that always existed there. I think I was challenged for a time to, to find that element of myself, perhaps shrouded in the darkness of addiction. It makes it pretty challenging to support others, but. I think it was this, this ener- I think there's this energy and charisma um, that I've always had since I was young. And I think that's, you know, initially what attracted her to me. And perhaps what attracted her to me more was the vulnerability that I had in sharing the experiences that I had, I think made us extremely close very quickly. And having that be the foundation of our relationship, um, obviously shaped an incredible relationship, but it shaped a relationship that was founded on these empathetic principles, these vulnerable principles of, you know, before anything else, what you're experiencing and your feelings and your emotions matter. Um, And that other person is always the most important person. And when they're going through experiences, we need to need to support each other in that specific way. And I think that's carried through the last 11 years of our relationship. You're just remarkable that, you know, she was willing to wait so long for you to get your shit together. And wait, she did. Yeah, it was like years, right? Of drinking codeine and alcohol and stuff like that. Like, that's some patience, man. Woo! 
yeah, I think she's still uh, still exemplifying that patience to this day. But yeah, I think it, you know, our relationship was challenged all through through college as well, because I was still, <sighs> you know, I got I got arrested my sophomore year of college for um, wet and reckless is what they called it. But it's a, a juvenile version of a, a DUI um, got arrested for this sophomore year so it's not as if i had figured everything out i think in my mind i was like great this is the culmination of all the events like finally coming back to bite me in the ass because i blew a 0.06 i was technically under the legal limit right but i have all of these moments that still existed throughout college and you know even after college of trying to figure it out i think oftentimes my anxiety at least with natasha probably not with other people presents as as anger irritability and it took us a really long time to figure out that it was anxiety it was you know this panic and this you know desire to be so much more that oftentimes presented to her as as anger or or stress or me taking things out on her when it's really something that i had to work on for myself When you get involved with mental health, it's a certainty that sooner or later you'll hear someone's suicide story, either an attempt at suicide like Shana in episode 18, or standing on the edge like Amanda in episode 1, or Andrew in this episode. These stories are always shocking, and thankfully many of the stories I know don't end fatally, including Andrew's. Andrew wasn't sure what pulled him back from the brink of suicide. Maybe it was luck. Maybe it was divine providence. Or maybe it's as simple as his body shutting down when overloaded with pills and alcohol before he had the chance to pull the trigger. We'll never know for sure, but it was enough of a shock that it helped him get on the path where things start getting better. It takes a lot to keep someone going through a mental illness. It takes people who care about you to keep you on the path, like Andrew's girlfriend, now wife. It's so powerful when you know that someone is there for you, thinks you're good enough, and has the patience to keep supporting you. Love is a powerful medicine. In addition to love, we also need the professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists to guide us, and we need to be able to find them and afford them. Lastly, and this is where we can all help, we need friends and family around us to tell us that we're okay as we are, that they'll emotionally hold us and are happy to do what we need when we're not well, be that a cuddle, a breathing exercise, a cooked meal, or watching TV in silence. So let's get back to Andrew's story. Even with bumps in the road, he navigated college and got into the workforce, which is where we're going to pick things up. Talk through the last specific panic or anxiety attack that you had, and like, you know, where you think that came from, how it built, and then like, what did you do to, to get out the other side? Or the worst one that I had most recently was about a year and a half ago. Um, I was down in the, down in the Bay area. Um, I had done 70 flights that year. You know, my teammates wanted to go out and get lunch. I could tell throughout that week that my anxiety had been bubbling up and bubbling up and bubbling up. And, um, I tend to, to close off a little bit. I still communicate very well, but I tend to close off a little bit and I don't want to move around or be mobile. Cause I always have this idea in my mind that if I like get somewhere that I can't solve the problem, AKA 
solve the panic disorder or have a place that I can escape and, you know, be in silence or be in isolation in that moment in time. I think it's, you know, that that's something that scares me, but I agreed to to go out to lunch and get a coffee with them. And we went down to Gott's Roadside, um, a burger joint down in the, the Embarcadero Ferry building. And we're sitting outside, it's a sunny day and I'm sitting there looking around and it was probably one of the scariest moments of my life of, I looked around and I felt like I didn't know anybody around me. And I felt like everyone's looking at me. It was like a, an extremely dissociative moment. And my, one of my really good friends on the team looks over at me and Tommy says, dude, are you okay? You look like a, you look like a ghost, man. And I just like what the words that came out of my mouth were just mumbled, just super blurred. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't manage any of my emotions. I couldn't manage the experience around me. And I was just, everything just closed in on me and I just completely deteriorated. Um, I've developed this ability to just push through these experiences. And I think it's, I think it for now, <laughs> for me outside of the, the panic disorder, it's, it's my strength is I know that I've been in these moments that I can push through. Um, but I think I often reflect back on, you know, that acute moment in my life where I put a gun in my mouth and said, you know, if I can make it through that, I can make it through anything. So in the back of my mind, there's always this thing of like, yes, the world is ending. Yes, I feel like I'm going to die. Yes, I feel like I'm having a heart attack. No, I can't understand anything that anybody is saying to me right now. And I can't communicate like a normal human, but I'll probably be able to make it through this. But it's just sheer exhaustion the rest of the day. I can't think I don't want to do anything. <laughs> yeah, it's like half a day's like emotional output, you know, went through your body in three minutes or something like that, or emotional energy, I guess. Um, wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, sharing that story. You had an experience with um, suicide or a suicide attempt when you were uh, much younger. So over the period of time since then, how has depression and suicide shown up for you? I think suicidal ideation is something that's always present. I've spent a lot of time working through it with my therapist, but I think it's something that I'm always just incredibly fearful of because I know in the back of my mind that I've been there, I've had this experience and it's, it, I think it scares the hell out of me that I could be capable of doing something like that. You know, there's that piece of me that says, Hey, this could be you, you have been there before you could go back there. It was good for me to hear that because I feel like I didn't get there for a long time, but kind of once I got to that point, it seems so easy to get back. It's almost like a, you know, like there's kind of an injury, do you know what I mean? Like a, your ankle's a bit weak, right? And so you're going to roll it much more easily like the second, third, fourth time that you that you put uh, put weight on it in the wrong in the wrong way. You know, I've had a couple friends that have um, died by suicide. Every, I think every time that happens, it really makes me reflect and, and see the impact of what suicide has on the people around them. And, you know, we had this fellow that, that died by suicide. And I think it shook everyone up pretty hard. I got a call from our, our operating partner and I, the folks at PwC were incredible. I had started writing some time ago about mental illness, but she'd always come up and look at me in the eyes and say, how are you really doing? How are things going? But I think every time I have this experience, it's a lot of reflection and it was a, a full week of me. It kind of messes me up a little bit when I see, see that happen. But one thing that I did that was really helpful that I'd never done before is I, I wrote a note to my 16-year-old self saying that I hear you, I see you, 
I understand why you were there, but I'm so proud that you are this person now that it's okay that you had all these things that you were going through, that it's not a, you know, a tarnish on your brand. It's a part of who you are. It's a, you know, it's a purple heart for lack of, lack of better description. But I think it's, it's something that really helped me reconcile that piece of me and not be so fearful of it. So let's talk a little bit about the work um, that you have done and the work that you, that you do. You work for a large consulting company for a while doing, you know, tens of flights a month, it sounds like, um, which is pretty typical in, in consulting. Um, how did that mix with your, you know, with your anxiety, with depression, with the panic attacks, et cetera? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I started, I started my career at PwC and stayed there until I recently left in early October, but um, started my career in accounting and finance, um, working more on the transaction side and working with emerging companies. Um, smaller technology companies. And uh, that had the tendency to be really, really long hours. Um, that was, you know, 60 to 80 hours. And I think that was an experience of of feeling very, very trapped of I wasn't able to, to be my fullest self in that specific environment. Um, I was about to leave the organization and then ended up getting an opportunity in this new group called New Ventures. Um, and from that, yes, there was a, a lot of travel. Um, I spent six months down in the Bay Area with this organization called Mach 49, basically learning the, the customer development process and learning the idea to MVP process. And it's going, uh, going from not traveling at all and starting to have this reemergence of anxiety in my life again after not being in a place where I felt like I should be. Um, to suddenly traveling every week when I didn't necessarily have a grasp on who I was or what I was doing was really challenging. I've never been really good at being alone for an extended period of time. Now more so than ever, I'm, I'm okay with it. And I look forward to those, those moments of being alone because it doesn't feel like I ever am now. But so many hotel nights by myself was just super dark. You go to work during the day and these are your work friends, but it's not a close community. I think there was a lot of reflection on like, what the hell am I doing? Like, why am I, why am I down here by myself so much? And um, I think, you know, I'm grateful looking back on it because it forced me to start doing a lot more work on myself. So much time alone with my mind was really challenging, perhaps what I needed, but um, it just really brought the anxiety back and brought the panic disorders back and um, brought the depression back in a way that I hadn't seen in a really long time. Yeah, I've had that experience. I, I don't travel as much as you do, but I've had the experience of kind of, for me, it's the duality of it's nice to have time on my own because, you know, like I live with a, you know, have a family and work and I'm just kind of busy all the, you know, all the time. So it's nice just to get some kind of true downtime. But the flip side is like the disconnection from, you know, everybody who's around me. Right, you know, disconnection from my, you know, daughters, from my wife, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I've I've had some dark, dark times alone in you know in hotel rooms. It can be rough. What were the resources available to you at PwC to help you know manage your anxiety, depression, et cetera? Yeah, they 
so they got ginger IO while I was there. So there was a big, and I think culturally there's been a big shift from a mental health and behavioral health perspective, but, um, Tim Ryan, the CEO started making a lot of investments in behavioral health, mental health. First, they rolled out calm, which is the computerized cognitive behavioral therapy app that a lot of people probably know. Um, I started using that, which was really nice because they paid for the, the annual subscription of that. It's a, another tool in the toolkit. It's not a, a problem solver, that's for sure. Um, they had mental health resources available. If I'm an employer and I want to get started or do more to support my employees' mental health, what should I do? First, you should create an environment where people feel comfortable talking about mental health. That means it needs to be in the forefront of communications. A lot of companies like to talk about well-being. Mental illness and mental health should be something that's included in those well-being conversations. That's the type of thing that normalizes it. I think it would be really interesting if companies shared stories of um, professionals that exist within their organization of them overcoming mental illness. Just providing access to that knowledge that the people around them are experiencing these things is incredibly helpful. Obviously, providing free access to mental health care resources is incredibly important but also physical and health benefits that allow them to take care of those other elements of their life. I think one of the challenging things with mental health care resources at large organizations is that it's almost, it's almost used as a mechanism or a tool to increase productivity. And I think that's the value proposition of mental health care resources at large organizations. And that's one of these things that I'm always really conflicted about in my mind, but um, just creating all of the resources, having them accessible, having the conversation about it, and you know, being willing to, to share your own personal story is going to be very helpful from the top down. I never use the resources available through um, PwC. Um, I, I did some research and tried to understand what that process would be like, but I also was a little bit apprehensive about using the mental resource, mental health resources at my organization, because I didn't know what would be attached to me as a result of that. Because um, I still think, you know, it's this idea of like image and presenting in a certain way. And I really didn't want people to, to know that I was going through these experiences. And I think, you know, that's going to be something that every organization has a profile attached to an individual. And I was like, is this going to be a part of my profile as a as a professional. So like somewhere in an HR system, there'd be like a, you know, a flag for like anxiety or depression, like, like that literal? That I think in my mind, you, I mean, you conjure these stories up in your mind, but I think, yes, I was like, you know, in our HRIS tucked away, there's going to be this notch that says Andrew is, uh, you know, Andrew has mental illness or he's dealing with anxiety or depression and this is going to impact his performance. And I think the worst, the worst thing for me is like having someone look at me a different, different way. Right. Like, and I always thought it was funny because <clears throat> one of the partners, when she found out that I had been dealing with all these things after I started writing about them, she was like, Oh my God, I never would have guessed that you were experiencing things like this. I didn't know that you were challenged with these things. And I was like, these things are not mutually exclusive. They, I can have anxiety, but I can also be a very high performer. I can have depression, but I can also, you know, show up and be the fullest version of myself. And to your point, that anxiety probably played a role in that high performer, right? Because you're kind of overcompensating sometimes. Oh yeah, it still does. It still does. Yes, <laughs> the overcompensation is is always there. What's next? I should be doing more. 
you could be better. What you've described there is like the dictionary definition of a silent superhero. There you are, like plugging away, you know, doing great work whilst managing these things that people don't see. And people are surprised when you take off the mask and like, hey, here's anxiety boy. Yeah. And I think oftentimes I'm, this is probably going to come across as weird, but frustrated with myself that I wasn't willing to share those things earlier. Um, Because one of the things that I've realized after sharing the experiences that I've had with mental illness is how willing and open that people are to share these experiences. And even the leaders within our organization are sharing these experiences that they had. Wow, this is so courageous of you to share this. And, you know, this is how I felt. I haven't really talked to a lot of people about this, but, you know, it feels comfortable to talk about these things. I don't know. We all have to share our stories. I think just enough of us have to share our stories. There's some tipping point, some critical mass where enough people share their stories and it's just so normalized that everybody starts to feel comfortable either talking about it or just doesn't feel alone because they deal with anxiety or depression. panic attack undersell the experience of a panic attack. Thankfully, I think I've only had one panic attack in my life. I was in the back of a car early in the morning, driving hundreds of miles to a ferry terminal to go to France. I was in college, and if I remember, I was still dealing with the flashbacks from a bad trip a few months earlier. The thoughts spun in my head about how long I'd be away from home, how much I didn't want to go to France, or spend hours trapped in the car with my friends. Eventually the thoughts were spinning so hard in my head, I thought I'd go insane. In the end, I couldn't bear it. I forced my two companions to pull over and leave me by the side of the road. I don't remember how I navigated the 40 miles home. I do remember that I got into bed and didn't get out until late the next day. What I experienced was a fraction of Andrew's experience. In the panic attack he describes, he lost the ability to speak coherently, to understand people around him, and experienced paranoia all while being trapped in this horrible world, unable to escape. Fortunately, he had the tools to grit his teeth and make it through. He also has the tools now to understand when a panic attack is coming and what situations trigger them. He's a panic attack pro, which is unfortunately a title that nobody wants. In this case, his panic attack came on because, in part, of the circumstances of his work, travelling up and down the country, working long hours, and staying alone in hotel rooms. Being alone also triggered his depression. But I give PwC credit that they were trying to support people like Andrew by providing resources like Calm and Ginger.io. It's also encouraging that Andrew's boss seemed to make a genuine attempt to support his mental health. And I was saddened, though, that he feared there was a checkbox in the HR system somewhere that said mentally ill and that that would be used to discriminate against him. That's a common fear. But remember, there are legal protections for people with mental illness. I know that those protections aren't cast iron, and there are cases where people still get discriminated against. But I also know that most HR professionals are committed to their work and would genuinely resist attempts to discriminate. Having worked hard and learned everything he could at PwC, Andrew decided to leave for something new. And that's where we pick up for the most recent leg of his journey. So I'm curious then... You chose to go from what is a high pressure, high stress, 
heavily measured environment in PwC to another high stress, high pressure environment, um, starting a, a startup. So talk about that journey. How did you get there? I think, yeah. So truthfully, you know, ever since I, you know, I told my parents when I was 12 that I wanted to be on the cover of Forbes, um, I've since ditched my materialistic ambitions. Um, you know, but everything that I was doing growing up was entrepreneurial. And then I think getting a taste of what that experience was like at PwC, working in the incubator, building a startup, taking that from idea to to revenue and understanding what that's like. It was this piece of me that always felt um, unfulfilled. Um, and I think yeah, <laughs> this can be appreciated as, you know, I need to get to this point in time where I'm building a startup. I need to get to this point in time where I'm going to be able to go out on my own and do this on my own. And it's safe to say that these moments are incredibly rewarding, but they don't feel as good as you think they're going to in your mind. You get to these, you get to these points in time and I've made, made the leap from, from PwC to now building the startup on, on my own or not on my own with two other incredibly talented people, but, um, and raising, you know, a decent amount of money for a pre-seed with a startup that has three months of traction. And it's like, this is this, this thing that I was looking for is, is still, is still not solved, especially in the context of mental illness. It doesn't push away those other experiences that I was having. And so from a pressure perspective, I mean, the pressure is there. It's just in a, it's just in a different way. I think the thing that I've been challenged most with now is just, I think the lack of structure. Um, and I think, that drive or that workaholism and that anxiety persists even more now with the lack of structure because there's 35 things at the end of the day that I feel like I haven't done that I should have prioritized better or focused on more. And so the work that I'm doing with the therapist right now is focusing on, um, you know, really creating structure and space in my day, getting a physical workspace. That was a huge step for me because um, then I was able to disassociate my home with work. And so I spend time there. It's creating structure on a weekly basis. Even if it's not every night, there's a lot of nights that I still work till nine or 10, but creating space for time with friends, time with family. And I think it's having to build a lot of the structures that existed within PwC for myself, but still knowing that there's going to be a lot of, lot of unknowing that exists. And immediately when I left, it was, I need to find another therapist again. And Finding another therapist has been extremely beneficial in that transition, just having that objective third party and not putting all of those stresses and anxiety on my co-founders. You mentioned therapists a few times. It sounds like you've been through a few therapists. (laughs) (laughs) Many people have. I would love to hear at each step how you picked your therapist and then like what told you that therapist wasn't right for you. When I was younger, so 16, when I saw my first psychiatrist, one of the the greatest challenges of psychologists that are providing care to adolescents is this this circle of trust that exists because my parents were engaged in the process as well. And so at this point in time where I really needed to share a lot of things that I wasn't comfortable with my parents yet knowing because I wasn't comfortable with them myself, uh, there was a break of trust. And I think that's one of the reasons that I stopped seeing a psychiatrist then. I saw mental health counselors at Spokane Falls Community College. I saw mental health counselors at Gonzaga. In those cases, you chose those people 
for reasons of access. They were there. Yeah, and was, presumably, they were free. Yeah, they were they were accessible. They were affordable. Um, they weren't necessarily equipped with the the evidence based toolkit that perhaps was what I needed to be um, served with at that point in time, but. They were somebody that was an objective third party that was there to listen and for me to vent to. And I think that was helpful at the time. I don't think it was until three years ago when I really worked with a incredible evidence-based licensed psychologist that I understood what important work that these folks do and the training that comes, the necessary training and requisite knowledge that these folks have and these frameworks that they apply you know, motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy. I think for the suicidal ideation piece, there's dialectical behavioral therapy that's very, very focused on the the individual and their experience and modeling what those relationships look like, not only in therapy, but outside of therapy. And I think for me, the good therapy experience was being able to model what those relationships look like outside of the, the clinical setting but then also arming me with the the toolkit. So when I am dealing with, you know, crippling anxiety or the depression comes back or that suicidal ideation is there of for each level of varying difficulty on the spectrum of where you're feeling, you have a tool that will help you solve this problem. As the company grows and you start to bring in more people and you start to manage people, you already noted that you sort of tend to put a lot of pressure on people around you. How are you going to adapt to not crush those people who come and work for you? I'm trying to basically learn from as many people and create as many situations where I have, um, you know, an executive coach, a mentor, an advisor, a therapist. So all of these people that I can talk to about the things that are stressing me out and are bringing me anxiety that aren't going to put that pressure and that anxiety on other people around me. Um, I think, you know, I'm blessed in that I have these co-founders, Vic and Faraz, who are both deeply passionate about mental health as well. And it's instilled in everything that we're doing at the company. On a, on a weekly basis on Thursdays, we have a, an hour where we sit down and talk about our mental health, how it's impacting our work. Within our Notion workspace, we have a daily mental health tracker <laughs> tracker that allows us to track our our emotions for that day, um, the level of fitness, what we're eating, how much sleep we've got, our general mood. And so, I think one of those things, and also taking some of this funding that we've had now that we're starting to pay ourselves and using it to to pay for mental health care and pay for fitness and pay for the structures that create better mental health on a daily basis and trying to instill that at a very early point to to support each other and everybody that's going to come after us. You are exactly the right person to be sort of helping run a company in this space, right? You're building into your culture from day one, very healthy ideas about how people should look after themselves and not just around mental health, You're talking about exercise, diet, sleep. It's just so encouraging to hear. Like, you know, I think about PwC, right? And PwC way back when, you know, for a long time has been founded on this very kind of competitive, like work constantly kind of culture, right? And they're trying to steer the ship by putting like, you know, we're by calm and we've got ginger. But like, I love that your culture is being built on a principle of like, we want people to be able to be physically and mentally healthy here. Yeah, it's it's who we are as it's who we are as people. Whether or not I'm the right person to to do this is unbeknownst to me. We'll find out eventually. 
that was an excellent job of putting yourself down. <laughs> One of my finest skill sets, yes. Um, but but why, yeah. what, what makes you not the right person to do this? Like this amazing lived experience in this area, like... Yeah, no, I, I, I'm coming in, I'm coming into my own skin, as I described earlier, and starting to believe that I am the right person to do this. But I think I've, a lot of the anxiety that I've had lately is, am I an imposter? Am I the right person to do this? Is, is this me? I'm 28 years old. Am I a person that's going to be able to make an impact on, you know, improving accessibility and affordability to mental health care? I think there's this perpetuating cycle of thoughts in my mind of, are you the right person to do this? But I think at the end of the day, I have a very high level of confidence and do believe in myself. And I have come into this place of confidence that I never had before. Um, but there's always that piece of imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's shared among a lot of founders of, you know, are, are we the right people to do this? Can we do this? Are you the right person? No. Is anyone the right person? No. You're just the person who chose to step into the into the ring. Yeah. And truthfully, I feel a responsibility to do this. Um, I've been given a position of privilege where a lot of things have fallen in my direction in my career and being a white male that's been able to, to speak up and get a lot of opportunities because of that existing in a structure where th that person is supported and lifted up. Um, and I think with one of my one of our lead investors, Tom Williams, he works with prisons. And one of the comments that he made to me when we were having a discussion, um, I was up in Victoria with him, we were eating breakfast. He said, you could just as easily be that person that's in prison, right? He's like, you have a responsibility to take the opportunity that you've been given and give that back to so many people because you have that opportunity. Yeah, because there's a lot of people who you know go on that first part of your path you know, get into drugs and smoking weed and taking pills and they got unlucky and they got caught by the cops. They don't get a wet and whatever it was, right? They just get a full on <laughs> DUI. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm with Tom, you know, there that you've been given an opportunity, you've been put on a path. And I certainly don't take that responsibility lightly. And I think it's those experiences, the friends that I've lost, the challenges that I have every day. And it's just, I get so much joy. And I think if you're one of my friends in my close friend group, you probably get irritated at me, but I'm calling you every day asking you how you're doing, what's going on, you know, what can I help you with? And it's, there's this drive in me. And I think what drives me most is this, this ability to support other people and the ability to, to help other people, um, especially folks that are dealing with, with mental illness and to have people come to me and share their experiences now that I've been able to, to share mine and, to help build a company on the back of that with a couple other people has been really, really incredibly rewarding. And I think that's what, that's what drives me every day more than everything. You building a company based on something that you believe in, like you're a smart guy, you could have gone and looked at the market and like, Oh, I'm going to build a company that I don't know, helps increase advertising spend or something like that, right? Which, which helps nobody at all. Do you know what I mean? But like you've actually chosen to build a company around something that you care care deeply about, which is which is awesome. Yeah, and I think one of the things that my co-founders and I, Vic and Faraz, talk about a lot is that people often build startups for the wrong reason. Um, so I look at a lot of the companies that are being built from a behavioral health perspective, and they're being built to serve a very specific audience. And I think 
you know, we look long-term at the opportunity. And one of the things that scares us the most is building a product for people that look like ourselves that, that certainly need it, but there's a lot of other people out there that, that need it, that need that accessibility and that need that affordability. And we're trying to figure out the right way to do that. I think that's something that keeps us pushing. Anything else that you want to say on the subject of anxiety, depression, herd, panic? Your story deserves to be heard. And if you don't have anyone to talk to, reach out to me. I want to have a conversation with you and you will be blown away by the immediate feeling of relief that you get by telling somebody about the experiences that you're having. So just remember that you deserve to be heard. You don't have to hide your feelings or emotions. Andrew, I want to say um, a sincere thank you for your time. I will be tracking herds closely because I think you're going to do work that is so, so important. It's so hard for people to get care right now. And you could play a big role in, uh, in solving that. So thank you. Thank you for the, the opportunity to come on and, and share my story, James. I, I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Take care. So we're going to end today's episode by talking about theoretical physics. In his Many Worlds interpretation of quantum physics, Hugh Everett III says that every time there's a decision or that something happens with multiple potential outcomes, a new universe is created so that all those paths can play out. For example, rolling a six-sided dice results in six different universes where roles of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 all play out. Through his early life, Andrew rolled the high-risk dice over and over and over again. There's a universe where he got caught doing drugs. There's another where he got caught stealing. One where the school administrator kicked him out, and one where he pulled the trigger on the revolver he had in his mouth. In our universe, the dice rolled his way. It rolled his way with the good stuff, too. He met the girl that would go on to be a doctor of psychology that cared deeply for him and had grace while he drank his way through orientation. My point isn't to make out that Andrew was lucky. We're all dealt a hand where there are things that happen along the way which we have little to no control over. But what we all do have control over is what we decide to do along the way. Andrew decided to seek help and worked hard at it. He decided to work hard at reconciling how he lived his early life. He decided to work hard to learn how to manage anxiety, depression, and panic disorder. He worked to get where he is, on the inside and the outside. Eventually, he decided to leave a financially comfortable job to found a new company with two people who care as much about mental health as he does. It's still early days, it heard. It's Andrew's first job as a CEO. But if there's anything tipping the dice in his favor, it's that he's demonstrated over and over that he's willing to work at it. And personally, I can't wait to see what he does. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.